The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. My aim is is very simple and straightforward and totally miraculous. Um... I want us to see the glory of the incarnate, eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, and worship him accordingly, treasuring him for all that he is and receiving all that he promises and, uh, and uh, yielding to him in faith as our Lord. So really one thing is needful and that is by the grace of God that we would see Jesus and respond in faith. My outline is very simple. I I walk through the narrative really in four points. Just they're they're basically one words. I, I, I could say point number one, time. Point number two, place. Point number three, birth. Point number four, son. We can fill that out a little bit. Point one, the divine time. Point two, the divine place. Point three, the divine birth. And point four, the divine son. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, so now help us as we look into your word we ask as your blood-bought, chosen, holy, and dearly loved people for your help that we not be lulled into a spiritual dullness this Advent season. This text is so familiar. So by your great mercies to us in Christ and by the truth of this word and the power of your spirit, magnify your name in our souls And fill us with joyful praise as you might grant us grace to see you anew through your glorious Son. Pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory and our joy. Amen. So, point number one, the the divine time or the sovereign time. Our text begins with what might seem like an insignificant reference to time. Verse 1, in those days, and I just stopped right there. It is massively significant. This is the time 
of, for the dawning of the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament concerning the one who was to come, the Messiah. The scriptures describe this one, this Messiah, in different ways, as the seed of the woman, or the promised one to come, the prophet like Moses, or the son of David, or the King David's Lord, or the suffering servant, all summed up in the Messiah who would come and save God's people and reign over them with justice. I'm going to highlight three of these now. I mean, I mentioned, I could have mentioned more. Three of these, seed of the woman I'm going to focus on. And, um, and then I'm going to just draw out a Davidic shepherd. And then I'm going to, I'm going to highlight the suffering servant. All promises from God, all promises of the Messiah. The Messiah would come and be this one who is to come, this, this um, seed of the woman, and this, this Davidic shepherd, and this suffering servant. Let me just do those, those three. The time has come now in our text for the arrival of the seed of the woman. Just to put it in context, remember, back in the creation, Adam and Eve sinned. And due to Adam's sin, all humanity was now plunged into a state of depravity, a state of sin affecting everything, our attitudes and our actions and our minds and our hearts, everything tainted by sin. In fact, even all creation groans under the weight of sin, human sin in this world. And uh, in our rebellion against God, we are, we are born in this state of sin, this state of rebellion, having fallen short of the glory of God, and we're under God's judgment. And so what's interesting and beautiful, actually, is that when God meets with Adam and Eve and the serpent to pronounce his judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin and his judgment on the serpent, he speaks a word of hope to Adam and Eve and a word of future judgment on Satan, on the serpent, that his, his end will come. Remember this? This is, the, this is the promise of the seed of the woman. God promises that the time would come when the offspring, descendant, seed, of the woman would crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15. So Satan, the deceiver of man, he's the one who deceived Eve and deceived Adam. This Satan, the, the, the adversary of God, will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And, and the children of God would be set free from bondage to sin and, and even all creation would be set free from bondage of sin when the seed of the woman would come as promised. It's number one. So here's the second one. So what I want you to see is in, in those days means that time promised for the seed to come has come. Second one. The time has come for the arrival of the promised Davidic shepherd. I could have gone all kinds of places. I went to Ezekiel 34. And it's a time when, when God's people are under his judgment. The priests and the leaders are horrible. They're bad. They're godless. Uh, they do more harm than good. And at that time, 
God speaks this word of hope, this word of promise of the the Messiah coming, the the Davidic shepherd. And, And God says it so beautifully personally and so intermingled with the promised one to come, this Messiah, this Davidic, Davidic shepherd. God says to the people, this is uh, Ezekiel 34, 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I mean, in contrast to those rulers and those religious leaders who are supposed to be shepherding the people, God says, I myself will do it. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Then he goes on in verse 22 of Ezekiel 34. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. So this, this is the in those days that's happening. The in those days described in verse 1 of our text is describing the time of the divinely appointed arrival of the promised Davidic shepherd. The Messiah is coming. The third illustration is, is that uh, this is the time of the arrival of the suffering servant. You know, Isaiah, his prophecies concerning the Messiah, the suffering servant, that this servant would come and by his own sufferings would pay for our sins and be our peace. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So just those little words, verse 1, in those days means that this is the time of the arrival of the suffering servant, the one who was to come. Paul says it this way in Galatians 4.4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The time has finally come. Breaking in 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 verse 1 of our text. So it's no significant and throwaway phrase that verse 1 begins in those days. It's not an accident of history. It's not a coincidence. This is the sovereign appointed time of God to send the one who is to come. That's point number one. Point number two, the divine place. The sovereign place. Now, even, you got to love the sovereignty of God all over the Bible, all over this text. Even the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, recognized as probably the most powerful human being on earth at that time, uh, king of the known world, and, uh, and even blasphemy, blasphemously worshipped by some people, treating him as a god, Even Caesar is in the providential hand of God. You know, I hope you know, Proverbs 21, 1, that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. God's sovereignty over 
the most powerful human being in the world at that time. And so God turned Caesar's heart to issue a decree. <laughs> it's beautiful. For a census of all the Roman world to be taken, directing everyone to go back to their ancestral home and register census and probably most likely in order to be taxed. And unbeknownst to Caesar, this mundane administrative decree was the divine means by which God arranged for the birth of Jesus to take place in his sovereignly ordained place, Bethlehem, David, David's city, the city of David. And so verse four of our text says, Hearing the command of, of Caesar, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. So, I mean, Mary and Joseph, they're not thinking of traveling when she's eight and a half months pregnant. I, we had a, a, some neighbors moved into our, our neighborhood and, and the, the young woman was pregnant and, and she was so very pregnant. All the neighbors would watch her take a walk and, you know, like it's getting like eight and a half months. We're going, oh, please, you know, deliver, like maybe please anytime now. It was just painful to watch her take a walk. So Mary and Joseph are taking an 80 mile trip from Nazareth, Joseph's hometown, or it's currently place that he lives, back to his ancestral home, to the city of David, Bethlehem. And just enjoy here that by the providence of God, in this particular time, God arranges through the decree of Caesar that his son would be born, would be incarnated as the son of Mary in the very city that the prophet Micah had foretold Bethlehem. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me the one, is to be, the one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. So this eternal king is going to come, be born in Bethlehem. Come forth from Bethlehem. So it's, it's just, it's not insignificant. It's no coincidence that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem on Caesar's command. This was God's sovereignly, divinely appointed time. So we've got the, or excuse me, place. We've got the time. We've got him in the place. Bethlehem. And then point number three, the birth. The birth. Now, prior to Mary's pregnancy, as we've seen, God told Mary through the angel Gabriel how this was going to happen. Remember, she said, how's this going to happen? And the angel said, look, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power, of the, Holy, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born in you will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Angel Gabriel explains how this birth is going to come about. It's going to come about by the work of the Holy Spirit in, 
a virgin, the Virgin Mary. You know, our, Luke does not talk about how this went down for Joseph. So let me just insert that here. So Joseph, Matthew explains it. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. And so he, he notices, he figures out, she tells him she's pregnant. And Joseph knows for sure he is not, he is not the father of this child. He's not engaged in premarital sexual intimacy with her. And, and so Joseph, maybe, I mean, surely with sadness and grief and maybe a sense of betrayal, he's thinking, I mean, she's pregnant. Somebody, she must have. And Matthew one nineteen says, Joseph, her husband, betrothed, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He settled that in his head and he went to bed and as he slept, an angel of the Lord came to him and let him in on what was going on. It's a beautiful thing. The angel said in the dream, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph woke up, he believed, and he did what the angel told him to do. So he took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. So there's the third piece that I want us to see. The divine time, the divine place, the city of Bethlehem, and the divine um, birth, the divine pregnancy is underway, and Mary's going to give birth divinely by the power of the Holy Spirit. And our text then unfolds. Verse 6, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Matthew's account in Matthew 1 sums up this in this way with these words. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Isaiah 9, uh, 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So those are the first three points. The divine time, the divine place, and the divine birth. The fourth point is the divine son. This is the manifestation of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. I mean, it says it so simply in our text that this, the, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to a son. And I'm just clicking on that, zooming in on that, and marveling that the divine Son 
is born here. This is the manifestation of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God to become the Son of Mary. And let not our familiarity with the birth of Jesus dull our minds and damp down our praises here. This is mind-blowing. This is amazing. This is incredible. This is awesome. What I want to do is, is just spend the rest of our time thinking about the incarnation. It's the theological word for the Son of God taking on human flesh, being born by the Virgin Mary, and... Uh, and living his life. Jesus, the son of God and son of Mary. This, that, the incarnation is the word to, to describe that. So the incarnation. God the son, eternal, being born as the son of Mary. This is incredible. Of this incarnation, theologian Wayne Grudem writes, in his systematic theology book, as he finishes up the section on the doctrine of the person of Christ and, 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 and the, the doctrine of the incarnation, listen to his words. Here's how he sums it up. The incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle in the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and most profound mystery in all the universe. God, give us eyes to see and faith to worship. So what's, what's so amazing about the incarnation? I'm going to say three things. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. And Jesus is one person. Jesus is fully God. I could scroll back to the creation. Could he, I, let me just give a general comment. God exists forever in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know this from Scripture. Uh, a while back, I preached three sermons on the Trinity, and, and I'll actually put a link in those three into the pastor's letter this week. If you want to hear what I have to say or learn more about the Trinity. But for all eternity past and all eternity future, God has and will continue to exist as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons forever. He is the triune God. That is who he, he is. And as such, he has no needs. He he is sufficient in himself. He, 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 I am that I am. He, he is not dependent on anything. He, he did not need creation. He's full in himself. He, he did not need creatures. He did not need creatures like, like he had a need to love or express it. He, 
He ever has and always has been in loving relationships with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, full and rich. He, that's why the Bible says he is love. He didn't become love when he created human beings to love. He is love. Eternity past, eternity future, loving relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He always has and he always will be the triune God. Sufficiently, sufficient in himself, full, happy, satisfied. So it's amazing that this triune God, self-sufficient, spoke the universe into existence. You know how it's described in the Bible. You, you see the Trinity in it. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the, the, the world, over the voidness of all. The, God the Father God the Father decides to speak forth his word. And we know from scripture that this word coming from the Father is his son. And he says, let there be light when all creation is born. And it's amazing. Is it not that this all-sufficient triune God then creates man, human beings, male and female? In his own image. Regarding the son's role, the son of God's role in all this, the first three verses of the Gospel of John make it clear. In the beginning was the Word, the Son of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the son of God, part of the Trinity at creation, the word creating everything. Colossians 1.16 puts it this way. For by him, the son of God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So now Jesus, the son of God, is fully God. All the fullness of deity dwells in him, Colossians 1, 19 and 2, 9 say. Hebrews 1, 3 says it this way. He, the Son of God, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus, the Son of God. All the attributes of God belong to Jesus, the Son. He is omnipresent. Behold, I am with you always. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He has all divine authority to command us and to command miracles. And he has the divine authority to forgive sins. He 
In his divine nature, he shares the glory of God. He's worthy of our worship. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is fully God. He is the eternal Son of God incarnate as the Son of Mary. Point number two in this is Jesus is fully man. By taking the form of man, Christ voluntarily restrained from some of his privileges and glory as the Son of God. Philippians 2, 6 explains. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He took on this human nature. John 1.14 says it this way, and the word, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in this incarnation, added to the Son of God's divine nature is this human nature, such that we can say he is fully God and fully man, fully human. The Lord Jesus had a human body. He got tired. I actually kind of love it that he fell asleep in the boat so that like I say to pastors, look, Jesus fell asleep in the boat. You can take a break too. He got thirsty. He was hungry. He grew and became strong. And he suffered and he died. Even after the resurrection, he, he has a human body and he, he ate fish. He had a human mind and as a boy, he learned wisdom. He even had limited knowledge in his human nature of the second coming. He had a spirit that was troubled like a human being. He had emotions. He was tempted in every way. Yet, without sin. Human being, sinless. Number three here. So we have Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man, human. Number three is Jesus is one person with two natures. He's not two people, he's one. Anything that Jesus does in either nature, the person of Christ does. He's one personality. In his human nature, he has limited knowledge. In his divine nature, he knew all things. In his human nature, he's about 30 years old. In his divine nature, he's eternal. One person, 
one personality, two natures, in the Son of God, who is the Son of Mary. It's amazing. So now, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this, this is where I want to end. Just, and I just think it's glorious. Not that, I mean, all this is glorious. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Mary, is the only being, the only individual in the universe who is able to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God. Only him. Who else qualifies? It's like the song, is he worthy? The incarnate son of God. He is the, this one born of Mary is the promised Messiah. He is the one sent by God to save. He is the seed of the woman. He is the one like Moses. He is the son of David in David's Lord. He is the suffering servant. He is Jesus, the one promise who will save his people from their sins. And as such, Peter says in Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Mary, is utterly unique. And salvation is in him alone. That's why Jesus said, one of the things that people today will find most offensive and arrogant. Jesus said, remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, why are you so unique? I mean, we've got the table set, Son of God, eternal Son of God, becoming the Son of Mary. Let me walk it through as we close. Why is Jesus so unique and so uniquely qualified as the only person who was able to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God? What's well, because only the Son of God was sent by God the Father in love to accomplish our salvation. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not only that, but because only the Son of God is qualified to be the mediator between God and man because he is both divine and human. First Timothy 2 says, there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and men. And then it says, the man, Jesus Christ. Did you hear it? Only one mediator between God and men it's the human son of God and son of Mary. And not only that, but because the son of God, having become man, sympathizes with our human weaknesses and is empowered to help us with grace and 
mercy in our times of need. You know where I am, Hebrews 4.14. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And not only that, because only he has established the promised new covenant by his blood, by his death for us. And as our mediator, our great high priest, he lives forever to intercede on our behalf according to the new covenant that God would keep us and preserve us and, and save us to the, to the end. I'll read the verse, uh, Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him through God because he always lives to make intercession for them. So he's this mediator who died for us, established a new covenant, and then he lives to intercede for us all the way to the end to make sure that our our salvation that starts gets completed. And not only that, because Jesus, only Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Mary, died for our sins. Once for all time and rose from the dead for our sakes according to the scriptures to bring you and me to God. He's utterly unique. Utterly unique. Only he is able to do that. So I just I just pray that our familiarity with the manger and the Christmas carols, the glorious Christmas carols, and Luke 2 that Linus reads in the Charlie Brown Christmas would continue to land on us anew with awe and marvel and worship and treasuring of Jesus the Son of God and Son of Mary, the only one who could come and save us from our sins and bring us to God now and forever. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. Thanks so much for your great love for us in sending Christ Jesus, your Son, to die for us while we were yet sinners. And that he is this mediator between us and you now and forever. Give us great confidence, I pray. Fill our hearts with with joy and praise and marvel and trust. And work in our hearts a yieldedness to Christ. To his wisdom, to his word and all your workings in our life, I pray. All because Jesus came at the right time, born in the right place born by the Virgin Mary, the Son of God and Son of Mary incarnate to save us. Thank you so much for your mercy. Bless us now as we close in Jesus' name. Amen. 
thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.